Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Your word is precious. Yes. And um, your spirit is strong. Amen. Father, I just ask you this morning for the grace to believe. I ask you, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truth in your word and the treasure in Christ. Do that miracle for us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God took what was shapeless and void... And by the power of his will, through his holy word, he formed the earth and all that lives upon it. He looked upon his creation and he saw that it was good. And then God made man. And he gave him dominion over all of the earth and everything that is in it. And he made a garden in the midst of his creation, and he placed the man in the garden, and he told man to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And then he looked upon what he had made, and upon man and woman, and he saw that it was very good. We lived in peace and in harmony with our divine creator and our holy father. We had access to him, and he came in the cool of the evening, and he walked and he talked with us. But we rebelled against his love. We forgot all of his benefits. We followed the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life into sin and into death. We traded the eternal glory of God for the images and lies of the world. And we profaned what was infinitely valuable, thereby marking ourselves as infinitely guilty. Death became our habitation, sin became our desire, self became our God, and eternal punishment for our infinite sin became our inheritance. Amen. Amen. And so, also, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. But they said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. How is it that you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, have I not been with you for so long that you don't know me still, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father has seen me who has seen the Father. And Jesus cried out, whoever has seen him who sent me has seen the Father. For Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him is the whole fullness of the Godhead bodily He is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature of God. 
By him all things were created in, in heaven and on earth, everything visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He upholds the universe by the power of his word and, and in all things he holds them all together. And yet, in spite of all of this, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. He committed no sin, none. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so it came to pass that by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when that time approached, the time of his death, he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. So, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. God has highly exalted him. He has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, for the Father loves the Son and has given everything, all things, into his hand. God has put all things in subjection to him, all the angels and authorities and powers and principalities. He is now the head of the body, the church. He is the the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He has authority to forgive sins. He speaks, and the wind and the sea obey Him. He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. He rebukes fevers, and they leave. He causes the blind to see, and the deaf to hear, and the lame to walk, and lepers are made clean. He commands the dead, and they live. He suffers little children to come to Him, but He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and brings down the mighty from their thrones. And yet, He will not bruise a reed or quench a smoldering wick until justice is brought to victory. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. No one ever spoke like this man. To know Him is to know the unsearchable riches of Christ. And He is coming again on the clouds. Even as they saw Him go, but this time He is coming with holy angels and with power and with great glory. And He will deliver us from the wrath that is to come. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. In that day... In that day, how can it be 
He will dress himself for service. Amen. And he will have us recline at table. And the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the crown of heaven, the jewel of the ages will come and serve us. Amen. Because he will still be meek and lowly in heart. And yet his eyes will be like flames of fire, his feet burnished bronze that is refined in a furnace. His voice will roar like many waters, and from his mouth will come a sword, a two-edged sword. And his face will shine like the sun in full strength, and we will forever be with our Lord. Amen. We will see no longer through a glass darkly, but face to face. Rejoicing in hope will give way to the joy of sight. The pleasures of every taste that bound us to Christ in this world will explode into pleasures of heavenly feasting. And we will know finally, not in part, but perfectly, that in His presence is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Most of that is excerpted from a message that John Piper preached in 2019. It is all taken directly from the pages of Scripture. But he compiled it in such a beautiful way. When I heard him preach it, I was sitting in an auditorium full of a thousand other ministers, and you could hear a pin drop. It made our hearts sing It gave lift to the wings of our souls. I wanted to stand and shout, All glory be to Christ my King. And that, church, is what the gospel ought to do. It should make our hearts sing. Church, that is the Jesus that we preach. That is the end that we seek. That is the power by which we live and move and have our beings. That is the gospel and the gospel is of first and fundamental importance to the Christian life without it in fact there is no life not really for the Bible says in Romans 6 and 23 that the wages of sin is death and again in Ephesians 2 and 1 we are passionately reminded by Paul that we are all dead in our sins This is a condition from which there is no escape. Death, being dead, dead men, dead women, they cannot do anything, much less escape. There is only one hope, one truth, one way of escape, and that is Jesus Christ. He stood in our place, He took all of our punishment and all of our guilt upon Himself. The power to live comes from the gospel alone. There is no other way. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, the way, the truth, the life. Not a better way, not a better truth, not a better, but the only way, the only true, the only life. There are a lot of people, Christians, who have this idea, and they may not even realize that they think this way, but they have this idea that the gospel is just, just sort of the, the entry point. 
The gospel is just the, the price of admission that we pay to all of this, this other stuff. When we receive the gospel and believe, and, 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 and we've, we've done that, we've, we've believed in faith, so now we can move on to other deeper things. Now we can be real spiritual people. And so then the gospel gets relegated to being a message that is mainly for unbelievers. They say, oh sure, we must remind ourselves from time to time of where we've come from and how we got here, but mainly the gospel is just for those heathens out there who have not yet come to faith. I'm a believer, so I have to go explore deeper things. They think that we must move beyond the gospel to get at the real meat of the word, to understand the, the richer mysteries that are hidden in Scripture. But church, I have to tell you that it's that kind of thinking, that exact kind of thinking that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in the garden. He looked at them, just remember from last week, he looked at them and he said, this isn't enough. You don't have enough. What you have isn't rich enough or deep enough or wide enough. The gospel isn't enough. There's more. And so we have a lot of believers who think that we have to move beyond the gospel in order to become more, more spiritual and more mature in order to know the deeper mysteries of the word. And I tell you, there is so much error that comes from this way of thinking Amen. because it fails to examine all other doctrines and all other ways of thinking and all other ways of worship and all other ways of living in light of that simple and glorious truth that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose again, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That way of thinking pays lip service to the lordship of Jesus, but what it really seeks is power and authority. And with many temptations, it lures good people into following false teachers and false doctrines because they have taken their eyes off of the prize, which is the gospel. Amen. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 15, and here we are. In verse 3, the apostle Paul said, For I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received. Let me go back and say that. I delivered unto you as of first importance but I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Amen. Amen. The gospel is of first importance, church. Yes. And that does not mean that there aren't other important things. There are other important things. But what it does mean is that the gospel is first and foremost the most important thing in our lives. When Paul says first importance, he is talking about the level of importance, not the sequence of events, not this comes first and then there are other things after it. He's talking about the level, the primacy of importance of the gospel. J.D. Greer said that the gospel is not just a, a diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A through Z of Christianity. The gospel isn't the diving board. It's the pool. It's the thing that we're swimming in. We grow in Christ not by moving beyond the gospel, but by the going ever deeper, by pressing deeper into the riches and glories of the gospel. Amen. 
There's enough mystery there to satisfy a lifetime of pursuit. There's enough riches there to satisfy a lifetime of gain. There's enough wealth there to satisfy a lifetime. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he is determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Because whatever Paul is talking about, he always comes back to the gospel, to Jesus Christ and Him crucified in order to gain clarity and in order to gain power for what he has to do. The gospel is clarity and it is power in what we have to do. Isn't it odd that Paul would say something like that? I choose to know nothing other than Christ. When he had so many things to say. He spoke about money and giving. He spoke about marriage and, and, and sexual purity. He talked about business and relationships. He talked about church governance and the Lord's Supper, the operation and proper use of the, the spiritual gifts, church discipline, and a whole host of other things. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What could he possibly mean there? Either Paul is grossly exaggerating, which means he's not telling the truth, or he is telling the truth. Paul knew and understood very vividly that everything about the Christian life flows from and is empowered by the gospel work of Jesus Christ. That grace that we are given in the gospel is the grace that continuously transforms us into the image of Christ. The life that we obtain in the gospel is the life by which we do and accomplish every good work. And that's why Paul said, I live, yet not I, but Christ within me. I can't even live apart from the gospel. Not really. And again in 1 Corinthians 15, back up in verse 1, Paul said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's take that step by step, if we could. He says, now I would remind you. So the gospel is something of which we need to be reminded. This is not something that we should ever, ever forget or put on the back burner. In fact, we should always keep it in the forefront of our thinking. This is what he did for me. And then Paul says, I'm reminding you of, of this gospel that I preached, that you received. I preached it, you heard it, and by faith you received it. And so now you stand in it. The gospel is both the door through which we enter and it is the floor upon which we stand. It is the only way in and it is the only foundation upon which we can ever build anything of lasting worth. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul said that he had laid a foundation. He said, I have laid like a master builder this foundation and there can be no other foundation laid other than what has been laid which is Jesus Christ. Everything in Paul's thinking springs up from Christ and his work on the cross. The gospel truth. And then Paul says, and by which you are being saved. Now that's progressive language. That's a a continual kind of thing. 
ongoing salvation. It's, it's not just that you were saved once by believing in the gospel. You are also being saved by it. Amen. Active, present tense. Amen. Now, don't, don't confuse me here. <clears throat> there are dimensions, two dimensions of, of salvation. There's what we call positional salvation, where, where through faith you accept Christ as Lord and Savior, and in an instant your sins are forgiven, all of them. You are given the righteousness of Christ, you're made complete in Him, and you are adopted into the family of God. Amen. It's like when you adopt a child, and I can speak very personally to this situation, it's not a gradual process. There are no stages of adoption. One moment you belong to one family and then some papers are signed and the next moment you belong to another. Amen. And that's what it means to be born again into the family of God. To be born again in Jesus Christ. You are adopted into His family by grace, through faith, because of His work on the cross. You are instantly, positionally saved. Amen. Put in a position of righteousness. So when Paul says that we are being saved, he's not talking about that positional salvation. He's talking about ongoing, progressive salvation. Amen. He's referring to our continual growth and maturity and Christ-likeness for the rest of our lives. Amen. You know, I may have been adopted into a family. We may become adopted into a family, but we don't start acting like them until we spend some time with them. You understand? That's progressive transformation. That's what Paul means when he says that you are being saved. There's a progressive transformation, a progressive salvation. But he gives us a condition. Look, at there's a condition to this ongoing progressive salvation, to us being sanctified. He says, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, we must keep this word. What word? The gospel that he mentions in verse 1 that he preached. Amen. We must hold fast to it. That means we cling to it. We grasp tightly to it and keep it secure. You grow in Christ the same way that you begin in Christ. By re-believing the gospel. By meditating on the gospel. By considering just how enormous and eternal the gospel is. Our sins, which are many, have been forgiven, so we have been shown much love. Amen. There's one more passage I want you to look at to see this. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Don't tune me out by thinking, oh, this is elementary stuff. I heard this in Sunday school. Because once again, I'm setting you up for something. Second Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. So, how do we transform? By beholding Christ. How do we mature? We behold Christ. How do we grow in patience? We behold Christ. How do we face uh, uh, 
persecution and affliction with calm and confidence, we behold Christ. How do we have peace in the middle of the storm? We behold Christ. How do we love more perfectly? By beholding Christ. How do we give more sacrificially? We behold Christ. How do we have joy more fully? We behold Christ. We see Him. Where do we see Him? Plainly in His Scripture and on the faces of every saint of God that walks before us. Our job, our existence is to show Christ to others, to help them behold Him. A lot of people approach the Scriptures as this book of a bunch of heroes to emulate. You know, be a man after God's own heart like David, or dare to be a Daniel, or trust like Timothy, or move like Moses, believe like Barnabas, persevere like Paul. And there's all these heroes, you should be like them. Or they'll, they'll approach the Bible as a set of rules to obey. Did you know there are 1,663 commands in the Bible? 613 of them are in the New Testament. You all thought there were only 10, didn't you? The Christian life is like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You master a few of the 1,663 commands one week, but then these others pop up, and so now we've got to focus on those the next week. There are a lot of rules to focus on and a lot of, uh, of energy we need to spend focusing on keeping those rules. We see that all over the place. You know, when I was growing up, it was a big deal about what you wore to church. Look at me, I'm dressed in jeans. and a... This would never have flown when I was a kid. My mama would have had a fit. Church folk get all up in arms about how folks are dressed and whether or not they have tattoos or if they're going to the movies. There are rules. The Bible's about rules and we've got to keep the rules. There's 1,600 of them. And then there are a lot of contemporary teachers of God's Word who approach the Bible primarily like it's just a book of practical advice. You want to have a good marriage? Look at the Bible. You want to be a good leader? Look at the Bible. You want to be a good parent? Look at the Bible. You want good financial advice? Look at the Bible. It's just practical living. It's get, get help, self-help. The Bible's got a lot to say about all of those things. The heroes of the faith, the, the way that we should live, the, a lot of practical advice. It does have a lot of things to say about those things. But the Bible is not primarily about any of those things. The Bible is about Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you remember when he was walking on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend? And the Bible says he began to unfold the scripture for them from the beginning at, in, in Moses through all the prophets and showing them how they all pointed to him. The Bible is about Jesus. From Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth until the revelation, the Bible is about Jesus. It's not mainly a collection of heroes for you to emulate. It's the story of a Savior that you can hope in and that you can adore. It's less of a book about religious duties and what you need to do for God and more the story of what God has done for you. The story of a Savior who came to rescue us because we had broken all the rules and rejected all of His love and all of His wisdom. And we were so messed up that we couldn't put it all back together again. So what did He do? He came and He did it for us. 
The good news of Jesus is rich and deep and wide and everything ought to be done in light of that glorious truth. Church, the gospel is enough. Earlier in my life, I was one of those people who believed that there was so much more to the scriptures than salvation. I fell into the trap of believing that Jesus was just the door. Jesus is just the diving board. And once we get past that, there's this whole other realm of experience and understanding. And I was so very wrong. I've actually heard it said about some of our brothers and sisters who place an emphasis on preaching salvation that all they want to do is get you saved. They don't really care about the weightier matters. There's so much more beyond salvation. And to my great shame, I... I thought the same thing. I was one of them. But what could be more weighty than someone's eternal soul? I mean, do we believe it? Do you believe heaven? Do you believe hell? What could be more weighty than someone's eternal soul? What could be more weighty, more heavy, more important than a holy God humbling himself, lowering himself to become human So that he could live a life according to the law that we broke, that we refused to keep. That he could die in our place so that we could have a righteousness that we rejected. What could be more weighty than that? Church, I tell you the gospel is not just the beginning, but it is the end and everything in between. The gospel is of first importance. It is of continual importance. And we've got to put aside the the immature temptation to try and move beyond the gospel. And instead we must press ever more deeply into it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about seeing and savoring Him as Lord. He is a well that will never run dry. And by God's grace, I pray that this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was buried, he rose again, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That message will never, ever escape our attention. It is is the breath by which we live. It is the fuel for our spirit. It is the the mechanism that, that, that powers every generous act, every Christian act, every good deed. Without the power of the gospel behind it, it is for nothing. I love you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that it has reached hearts that are glad to receive it. Father, I pray that you keep us in your perfect will and in your perfect way. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.